According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 4. See if we can wrap up this book tonight. Philippians chapter 4. We are going to take a couple weeks to do a review of all four chapters, to go back and hit the highlights again, make sure we don't lose the forest through the trees. What was the book we did before Philippians? And what's Galatians about? <laughs> That's why it's useful to, uh, to get kind of a big picture approach so that we don't... Uh, lose things. All right. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Before we begin tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessings upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this evening, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the privilege that it is to assemble together. Father, uh, who are we that we have no right to understand these truths, these uh, principles from your plan, and yet you so freely communicate to us. We thank you for the blessings of your word that you've put in writing. We thank you for the church age where we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where we have gifted communicators. You just we have, you've left us without excuse, Father. Everything has been provided for us to, to study and learn and grow and glorify your Son. So I pray that you would open our eyes tonight to see our applications, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We do have some questions that we want to get to, and the microphone is prepared. So uh, I'll start with any questions. I'll reward you for being here and being on time tonight. So uh, if there's any questions from the floor, we'll take those first, and then we'll uh, go to the email questions second. Yes, sir. I'm a little fuddled, not totally befuddled, just a little fuddled, fuddled. Okay. about um, people who are born during the gen generations of the fullness of time. Mm -hmm. They still have to come to a point where they accept Christ, right? I would say no. No? So they're born into a perfect environment. Mm -hmm. They don't have sin natures, mm -hmm. and at least as far as we know, we, they wouldn't. Right. So, okay. <laughs> it, the, uh, the analogy for that would be, all right, so this is in the future, after the millennium on the new earth, uh, we're promised a thousand generations, and uh, they, they're born, there's, there's no more sin, no more death, the first things have passed away. And so it's, it really is a, a restoration of uh, the age of innocence, of Adam and Eve before the fall. And so when Adam was created and when Eve was taken out, you know, the rib was taken out and Eve was made, Adam and Eve before the fall, they did not have to come to a point of God consciousness or gospel hearing. They didn't have to get saved. There was nothing to be saved from when you are sinless in, uh, in the age of innocence you know, in, in, in the Garden of Eden. Okay. And so I think that's the analogy then. That's what is comparable to the thousand generations then on the new earth. So in a sense, everything from the fall to the uh, end of the the end of the millennium is an intercalation of what could have been. What could have been? That's right. Had Adam and Eve not okay, sinned. Okay. Thank right. you. Amen. That's a good good way of putting that. Uh, it's also worth considering that uh, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and they were commanded to procreate as sinless, perfect human beings. And that's, uh, that's a significant part of why that has to be fulfilled after the millennium, because God gave a command that he wants to have fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled uh, after the millennium. Yeah. All right. Other questions tonight? I do have three that Radley sent by email, so we'll get to those. I want to make sure I save time for those, but are there any other questions here first? All right, well, I'll go to Radley's questions then. Um, he had a question from Romans chapter 7. This is part of a discussion we had this morning also. Um, 
I think it was Romans chapter 7. Yeah, talking about in the flesh. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The members of our body. What are the members of our body? Well, it's our, it's our body parts. It's our feet and hands and nose and eyes and other body parts. That's what a member is. And, and, um, and that's really the weak point in terms of the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the fact is that even when we want to do the right thing, when you get down to verse 23, he says, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And the question that he had was connected, why is mind separated from members? Isn't the, isn't the head a member? Isn't the brain a member? You know, and, and it is, in the sense that the head is a member, is a part of your body, but there is a distinction between the mind and the body, and uh, that takes into some actually realms of philosophy more than anything on the mind-body problem and, and what is the soul as the immaterial part of man things like that. Anyway, um, I think if you can relax about the mind not being a member and separated from your members, remember the, um, the, the sin nature is physical. The sin nature is a part of your body. The old sin nature that prompts you to sin is a part of your body. It's not a part of your soul. And so that's why when your soul is separated from your body, your body goes in the ground along with the sin nature and your soul spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. There's no sin in heaven. So that's the, uh, the answer there. All right. Then another question. <laughs> Why the foreskin for circumcision? Well, I don't know. That's a, that's a why question. I don't always have answers to the why question. You know, God could have said, told Abraham, you know, here's my covenant between me and you. And the sign of the covenant is uh, chop off your left pinky or something. I mean, he could have picked a different body part. He could have picked uh, yeah, but he didn't. He picked the uh, the male foreskin. Um, why? It doesn't say why. Read <laughs> Genesis 17 tells you this is what you're told to do. I think it is, um, I can speculate, it's, um, well, it's definitely an act of faith, but if you're, if you're, an eight, if you're eight days old, now Abraham was 100, but if, uh, if you're eight days old, you're not, it's not your faith. You're just a baby and your parents are doing that to you. Um, but it is, uh, it is for the males only. That's, I think that's significant. That's, that's got to be part of it. And, um, oh, there was a second aspect on it too. Um, anyway, that's, that's the short answer on that. I don't know why. Um, second, why does Romans 5, 7, here's his, Radley's final question for the night. Why does Romans 5, 7 say that people won't die for a righteous, uh, but they might for a good person? I looked at the words in the original text. I still don't fully understand because why wouldn't somebody die for a righteous person? It seems more likely that someone would die for somebody righteous and good is just good. Um, and this is the point that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? That we were enemies, we were sinners. And that's extraordinary that he would lay down his life for an enemy. That he, and that's what we're commanded to do is to love our enemies. And uh, he died for the godless. In fact, there's a whole paragraph there or a section, verses 6 through 8, and you read all the commentaries, everybody loves verse 6, everybody loves verse 8, and everybody ignores verse 7 because there's puzzles in verse 7. There's grammatical puzzles, there's text puzzles, uh, there's different things. Why is it that, that uh, the righteous man has the definite article but the, uh, the good man does not? And there's other grammatical puzzles with respect to this verse. So anyway, while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For the good man, someone would dare even to die. And I think as long as Paul is generalizing, then we're fine with it. And I think he is generalizing. He says it's not normal. People don't do this. You know, the fact that Jesus died for us while we were enemies is not normal. And uh, it's not a part of the human experience. And um, I think the righteous man and the good man, uh, those are not synonyms, although some commentaries try to equate them. Um, Really, it's, it's human righteousness anyway, and it's human goodness anyway. And so if, if, you, uh, if you have to lay down your life, right? John 15, no greater love than this than one lay down his life for his friend. So we will, normally, we will, we will lay down our lives for our loved ones, for our family members, for, you know, for those that we love, of course. But the idea of a stranger, 
uh, and who would we who would we sacrifice ourselves for? Um, I think Paul's generalization actually is true. For an externally righteous man, we wouldn't really feel compelled to throw down our life so that this stranger. We can, we're just not overwhelmed by, ooh, he's just a very righteous man. He's, he's very law-abiding. He's very ethical. You know, that just doesn't drive us to self-sacrifice. Although goodness might start to point us that direction uh, in, uh, in different ways. So that's uh, maybe the best I can answer there. There is a good journal article by Andrew Clark, and uh, it's called The Good and the Just in Romans 5-7 by Andrew D. Clark. That's Clark with an E on the end of it, Clarky. Um, and if you want a copy of that journal article, just send me an email and I'll PDF it and send it to you. Uh, but there are so many puzzles related to, even grammatically, it's, there's no shortage of, of opinions on this. To clarify the relationship between the two nouns, we need to ask a number of questions. Godet has perceptively articulated these. Why does Paul substitute ha agathos for dikaios in the second half of the verse? Why is there a distinction between the two nouns in the presence or absence of the article? Ha agathos has an article. It's the good. But righteous does not have the article. It's just dikaios without the article. Why? Why is one articular and the other is anarthrous? Um, why is two agathu placed first in the second clause, thus creating a marked contrast? Why does Paul use chi in 7b, implying some gradation? And I agree, it is a gradation. Others uh, disagree and just say it's a, it's a repeat and then the words are synonymous. Anyway, it's about a 12-page article. So you will enjoy reading it. <laughs> or not, as the case may be. All right, so those are the questions that came in by email. Anything else tonight? Otherwise, we can jump on to Philippians 4 and... Uh, Take it from there. Anything. Going once, going twice. All right. Thank you for running the microphone. Philippians 4, picking up where we left off on Sunday, looking at the grace and peace, actually the grace that closes these epistles. Grace and peace open all of Paul's epistles, and grace closes them all. And uh, if you think I'm inaccurate on this, uh, just check it out. <laughs> Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Yep, that's all of them. The Pauline epistles in every benediction, in every opening, he begins with grace and peace. For, the, uh, for 1 and 2 Timothy, he actually adds mercy, grace, mercy, and peace uh, when he's writing to Timothy. Uh, otherwise, it's grace and peace in all of his epistles. Grace likewise closes them all. So Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Yep, 1 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. That's all of them. And so here we have grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace is really, it's the hallmark of our stewardship. It's the hallmark of our age. Grace is our currency, if you will, in our economy. Because as dispensationalists, we should know this better than anyone, that uh, we are New Testament believers, not Old Testament believers. They were under law, we're under grace. And grace is our economy. It's a grace stewardship. And we are the stewards of God's grace. And so if, you, if you're going to be a dispensationalist and you're going to study oikonomia and what does it mean to have a, a grace economy, uh, this is exactly it, that we are a grace ministry in uh, this local church. And every local church should be a grace ministry. And that's, I think, uh, part of why legalistic churches are so sad and so tragic is that when a church devolves into legalism, when you get a bunch of self-righteous religious types that have the long checklist of do's and don'ts and a lot of, you know, snooty people that look down their noses at, at people that don't measure up, it's just, it's, it's, it's tragic because legalism wasn't even a, a righteous provision for Israel in the Old Testament. The, the law doesn't justify anybody. And uh, the idea that they were under a legal economy, yes, they were under a works-based approach in the keeping of Mosaic law. The whole point was to prove that they couldn't do it. The whole point was to prove that no human can do it, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And so works, uh, and, and to then bring that into the grace economy, that's, uh, that's just nonsensical. That's a currency that didn't have much value back then. It has no value at all now. So Anyway, all of these are useful for us, and I think uh, they're good studies. Grace is a good study, and I recommend 
that you will look up every benediction and every um, introduction to all of Paul's epistles, and you can see those there. We do give uh, greetings, though, salutations and benedictions. They include wish prayers for God to manifest grace among the stated recipients. And really, we do the same thing even in modern English, even when we fail to realize that goodbye literally means God be with you, okay? Uh, if you, or if you want to be a Spanish speaker, you can say adios, which is the same thing, to God, right? Adios, it's to God. And you're, you're just, you know, entrusting somebody to God's care. And it's a way of parting, and it's a way of reminding one another that as we part ways, uh, we are in, in God's care for uh, everywhere we go and whatever else we do. So salutations and benedictions include wish prayers for God to manifest grace among the stated, stated recipients. And um, I think a lot of times our idioms have lost all force because we've, we've, uh, our culture has you know, just been adrift and lost the sense of it. Why do we say bless you to people? You know, why do we, you know, well, it's just a, it's a gut reaction. They sneeze. So I said, bless you. Well, why did I say bless you? Why do we bless people for sneezing? And, uh, and are there better occasions to bless one another? Okay. Besides sneezes, okay. Or coughs or anything like that. You know, we could say bless you for positive reasons. Um, you know, we, in addition to saying thank you, maybe it's a more full way of saying thank you, say bless you, that I'm expressing the gratitude for the grace that has, uh, that has been provided. Or um, somebody that offers an encouragement or somebody that says, you know, that, does, that just does a service. Oh, bless you in, uh, in whatever that, that may be. And uh, because they have blessed you and you want God to bless them. Now, we don't command it. When he says the grace be with you, God, uh, Paul can't just sovereignly dispense grace. He can't just make it happen by saying, uh, be filled with the grace of God tomorrow. But he can pray for that. He can wish that in his prayer. And it really, it's, it's an invocation calling upon God to supply the grace blessings. And uh, what a privilege. What a privilege. Could you imagine? You know, imagine, um, you know, uh, you know you're not, if you're not related to Michael Dell, but you happen to be in the same store as him at the same time, and then uh, you just go up to the checkout counter and, and uh, you buy what you're buying, and then you just say in his name, <laughs> right? You know, he's paying for it, right? Or, uh, you know, grab his checkbook before he can, you know, and then sign his name. What's that? We have no right to, to Michael Dell's checkbook, okay? But we do have the right to God the Father's checkbook, to Jesus Christ's checkbook. We pray in Jesus' name because we, we're, we're the bride of Christ, right? I mean, if, if you're the bride and, and you get married and you get a new name and, and you're one in Christ and you think about it, we're the bride of Christ and we, we, we sign every check in Jesus' name. And it's, a, it's really a thrill. So when we have a wish prayer for the grace of God and say, God's grace be with you, that's calling upon the Father to supply His infinite grace. And uh, we have every right to do that. Every right to do that in, uh, in this position. So that's what we have here with the salutation or with the benediction. Same thing too if we're greeting one another in, uh, in a sanctified way with a grace greetings uh, for one another. And... Uh, and so forth. All right. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now Paul is talking to a plurality. He's talking to a group of people. And when he says your, that's the plural, right? If he was a Texan, he would say all y'all, right? That's all y'all spirit. And the pronoun your is plural, but the noun spirit is singular. And that grabs our attention. It grabs my attention. It grabs a lot of people's attention. And we want to address that here tonight. Because this is actually a collective spirit. A collective spirit. It's stated here without explicit explanation. It's also stated in Galatians 6.18 and Philemon 25. It's stated here without explicit explanation. It doesn't define what that collective spirit is. Uh, Paul's assuming that his readers know it, they understand it, and, and we should, based upon our experience and based upon other passages of Scripture. There's also a personal spirit that Paul will reference in 2 Timothy 4, 
22. And there it's personal because he's speaking in the singular, speaking in the individual to Timothy himself uh, personally. But it's a collective spirit. And this is the terminology I'm going to stick with. Other authors use uh, different terms. Uh, grammatically, though, there is an argument, there is a debate, okay? And it's legitimate in Greek, it's legitimate in English, it's legitimate. It could be called a transferred plural, okay? A transferred plural. In which case, even though the your is singular, is I'm sorry, the your is plural and the spirit is singular, it could be... Uh, it's called either a distributed plural. So it's talking about a group of people, everybody has one, such as you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Okay? Paul uses that expression in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. The your there is plural, because he's talking to the, the flock at, at Corinth. And then body is a singular noun, with your body. All right? And that's understood as a distributed plural. That is, it's, it's written in the singular, but it's applied to everybody because everybody has a body. Everybody in the church has a body. And so that's the way that it's used there. And many commentaries, many uh, Greek scholars will look at this passage as well with the spirit and they will say, well, don't make a big deal out of it. It's just a distributed plural like glorify God with your body, the grace of God be uh, with your spirit, is just, it should just be a distributed plural because everybody has a human spirit. And you can take it that way. And so there's kind of a, a debate in the journals and in the commentaries and, and among different folks. Should the spirit be viewed as a collective spirit of a congregation or as a distributed spirit that is the individual human spirits of the, of the individual members of the church? Okay? Does that make sense? So, um, I've concluded that it's actually, in fact, a collective spirit because of the uh, exhortation that was given earlier, and I'll uh, deal with that here shortly. Um, but here it is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Over in Galatians 6.18 in a similar construction. The um, When he says... Uh, the grace of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Be with your spirit. It's your plural. It's spirit singular. It's brethren plural. And it's amen. All right. So it's very similar to what we have here in Philippians. Likewise in Philemon, where we have plural people in a home church. The letter of Philemon is written to not only Philemon the person, but also to Apphia, probably his wife, and to Archippus, likely their son, who happens to be the pastor of the church, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So the whole congregation is being addressed here. Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and the church in your house. That's the, the group. Grace to y'all and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the introduction to Philemon. And then the conclusion uh, where he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets y'all, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your, all y'all, spirit. Your spirit. Again, plural people, one spirit. But then there's the individual statement made to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.22. The Lord be with your spirit. And that's in a singular because Timothy's just one guy. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. All right. So now I think to resolve this, we have under point C, significant re uh, references to a collective spirit a corporate spirit. And it happened earlier in the same book. It happened back in chapter 1 of Philippians 1.27 and elsewhere in the New Testament, specifically 2 Corinthians 12.18 and Ephesians 4.3. And this comes to the core of what a church is. This addresses the unity that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ. Although we are many, we're many members of the body, we are still collectively one body in Christ. And the, so there's an emphasis to this. There's an emphasis to this. Philippians 1.27. 
backing up to chapter 1, and you might recall this if you were with us when we started this book study. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, see what it says, in one spirit. So all of you collectively are standing firm in one spirit. And it actually has the numeral one listed there in the, in the neuter with, with uh, spirit, because sp- uh, spirit is neuter. And then he says, with one soul, with one mind, one uh, psuche, that's feminine. So we have uh, the neuter number one and the feminine number one connected to the one spirit and the one soul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so we have a collective spirit and a collective soul, a collective inner man, if you will, because that soul spirit is the inner man of our trichotomous nature. We get that. We understand that we are body, soul, and human spirit. Now that's the fundamental description of humanity, that, uh, that your, your body, soul, and human spirit be complete to the day of Christ Jesus. That's our blessing in the church age. So uh, when, it, when he talks about a plurality of people, in this case the believers in Philippi, standing firm in one spirit in one, with one soul, that's the like-mindedness, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this should be the case, uh, by the way, there's a marital application as well, where uh, the husband and wife should be, uh, you know, one, in uh, the two become one, and the like-mindedness that should develop in a marriage. But that like-mindedness in a plurality is, is what a local church is combined together uh, for the faith of the gospel, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. And this is the thing, I think that a a unified congregation is the one that comes under the maximum attack. That's the one that the devil wants to to just get at more than anything. And so uh, when you're like-minded, you've got to stay like-minded because that attack is coming in. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So we can appreciate that. There's uh, the collective spirit that we had earlier in the passage. And so I think because of that, and because of these other passages that we have, is a very clear indication that a congregation is to be of one spirit. A congregation has a collective spirit, a collective identity. Okay, The sense of of who we are, is that, that inner man, that's who we are. The real you is not your body, the real you is your soul. You're the invisible you, the soul-spirit reality of our, of our human nature. All right. Same thing with a congregation. If a congregation has a unified soul-spirit, if a congregation has, if there's a spirit of the Philippian church, a spirit of the Corinthian church, which was completely different, if there's a spirit of the Thessalonican church, there's a spirit of, of the Ephesian church, I think we see this, and we see this in several different places, too many places to, uh, to ignore. And so there's the collective spirit here. Elsewhere in the New Testament, how about 2 Corinthians 12, 18? 2 Corinthians 12, 18. And uh, one of the defenses of his ministry, I guess, context for this. Um, hmm. You know, there was such such a divided flock there in Corinth, and he had to answer a number of criticisms. And uh, yeah, so we'll let that go. All right. Um, verse 18, he says, I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? And so here's a unified spirit that's, uh, that's addressed to the assembly there in Corinth and really is focused, first of all, with Paul and Titus that they were unified in spirit in terms of their ministry towards the Corinthian assembly, along with uh, the brother, whoever that might have been. 
Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? There's other idioms as well when he talks about, although I'm absent from you in the flesh, but I'm with you in spirit. What is that about? If if you're with somebody in spirit, well, I think it's more than just an idiom. I think there's a reality to that as as we have a spiritual uh, service one towards another. And if we can't be there in proximity, we can certainly be there in prayer and be, be serving one another and, and praying for one another and loving one another in, uh, in that way. How about Ephesians 4.3? Ephesians 4.3. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so this is, urge, implore all y'all, in the, in the plural of the, of the saints, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which all of y'all have been called. This is a corporate walk. This is a collective walk. We're walking together. This is, uh, Joe Hermit Christian can't do this because this is the body of Christ walking together with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. The, the, the Joe Hermit Christian can't, can't fulfill that verse either. The, uh, the whole concept of patience and gentleness and all these things, it's directed towards one another. It's the mutual reciprocal grace that we show to one another in the body of Christ. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I realize in, your, in our Bibles, we probably have a capital letter S there, viewing that as God the Holy Spirit as a reference. Uh, does it have to be taken that way? Does the Greek use a capital letter to indicate God the Holy Spirit? Or is pneuma the word that's used for God the Holy Spirit? It's used for our personal human spirits, and it's used for the collective uh, uh, spirit of a local assembly that is preserving that, that unity in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. All right. In any event, we do have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there in verses 4, 5, and 6, and probably that's why they capitalize the word spirit in verse 3. But I don't think it should be capitalized. I don't think that is a, a Holy Spirit reference. That's the unity of our corporate spirit in the body of Christ in the local church operations of where we are preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace all right so we have collective spirits what else might we be dealing with with respect to these collective spirits the collective spirit of a local church is conveyed to other local churches and believers everywhere in the reputation that lampstand has, whether good or bad. The collective spirit of a local church is conveyed to other local churches. See, and this is what we talk about. The actual unity, that, that spirit of unity, is, is in a particular lampstand. It's not global. It's not global. It's not the invisible church universal that all should agree with one another. There is a lot of division in the, in the church universal from all the denominations to all the broad traditions, from uh, Western Catholicism to Eastern Orthodox to Western Protestantism to Evangelicalism to all the the sub-denominations and divisions and so forth. And uh, the whole drive for, I think it's an artificial drive for um, ecumenical um, getting along and and compromising on doctrine so we can get along in uh, in friendliness, I, I think that's misguided. Because it abuses the texts of Scripture that show that the unity is in a lampstand, in a locality. We have the unity here. And we have reports from other lampstands where they also have unity there. Okay, But our unity here and their unity there, we want to foster these everywhere where we have these lampstands. And we get the reports and we have the reputations and we learn from uh, from one another, but that's as far as it goes. We don't have, um, you know, God did not put a, 
there's no hierarchy above the local church. Not, not as per the New Testament. Not as per anywhere in Scripture. Alright. So the collective spirit of a local church is conveyed to other local churches and, and believers everywhere in the reputation that that lampstand has, whether good or bad. And I think we've got several passages that can address to this. All right? So let's start. Romans uh, 1.8. See if we can uh, get through these tonight and then uh, call it a wrap. We'll move on to the review Sunday morning. Romans 1.8. And remember, when Paul writes to the Romans... He's never been to Rome. He's never been to this church. He knows some of the people, you know, friends of friends, all right, but he's never been there. But he's heard about them. So in Romans 1.8 he says, uh, well, first of all, the, the salutation here that he's writing to, to all, in verse 7, to all uh, who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So here's the reputation that the believers in Rome have, that the, the congregation in Rome has that he's writing to. It's their faith. The spirit that, 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 that is descriptive of those believers in that lampstand is their faith. Their faith is being proclaimed. That's their reputation. That's the spirit that they have. That's what unifies them and that's what's uh, being communicated and it reached Paul. It reached his location. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. And notice he stressed his spirit in verse 9. Whom I serve in my spirit. Right after he talked about their reputation. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. See, what's going to happen there, he's going to arrive and he's going to contribute to what they already have going on. Their collective spirit. And he's going to be blessed by their faith and they're going to be blessed by his faith. And it's, uh, this dynamic is going to be just a wonderful thing. That's what he's anticipating. That's what he can't wait to get to. Communicated there. All right, At the end of the book, in Romans 16, another reference. Romans 16 and verse, uh, ooh, I don't think that's the one I want. Is it 15 and verse 9? Ah, 19, 19. So that's a typo. It's not 16, 9, it's 16, 19. In verse 17, he says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Why is that an issue? Because of the damage that gets done. The collective spirit of a lampstand is torn to shreds by these uh, divisive dis uh, dissensions and hindrances. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now look at this comment on, on uh, their reputation. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So here too is a report. The report of your obedience. So in chapter 1, the reputation centered on faith. Here in chapter 16, the reputation centers on their obedience. Your obedience, the report of your obedience has reached to all. Okay? And to me, this is marvelous. To me, this is a, it's a neat pattern, and it's one that we ought to foster and cultivate in our generation. All right? This is not, uh, it's not ecclesiastical gossip, okay? Church gossip or any. This is, this is, what is the report out of Austin Bible Church? What is the report? When the report from Austin Bible Church reaches the saints 
in Bastrop and Corpus Christi and Spokane and Fredericksburg and wherever. Uh, what is that report? What is that reputation? What is the spirit, the collective spirit of Austin Bible Church? What are we known for in that collective spirit? All right. And same thing when report from there comes to here. See? Because uh, again, this is part of our encouragement to, to be praying for other lampstands in other localities. All right. Anyway, well, I can illustrate more if we have time tonight. I'll illustrate more with this because it's uh, it's a it's a, it's a blessing to me to keep the prayer list together that we have on our Medicaid prayer list. It's a blessing when uh, Pastor Jeremy Thomas calls me up and says, uh, "What well, can you tell me about Spokane Bible Church?" Ah, forty-five minutes later, do you want to know more? I mean, I just keep going and going and going. Almost an hour later. And because that's a flock I've visited seven or eight different times through the years. And I love that lampstand. And I could tell you about their pastor and his wife and his kids. I could tell you about the deacons and the deacons' wives. And, uh, and just I can just keep going on and on and on. Okay? And, and uh, that collective spirit is, uh, is a delight to, uh, to be able to give, give glory to God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So those are the Romans' examples. The Corinthian example is, is not good. All right, the Corinthian example is not good, but that also has to be communicated. First Corinthians five one, and this too, I think um, he was getting pretty rough with them in uh, chapters two, three, and four because he was addressing their schismatic nature and why the body of Christ is not divided. We should be unified, not divided. And he gives him a choice um, in verse 19. He says, I will come to you soon. This is 419. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God is not consistent in words, but in power. And then he gives him a choice. He says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or shall I come to you with love and a spirit of gentleness? Notice spirit, okay? Spirit of gentleness. What do you desire? It's like we could do this the easy way or the hard way, right? We could do this, uh, what do you desire? Just wait till your father comes home. Or, you know, Paul says, I'm on my way. Which Paul do you want to get here? You know, the rod or the gentleness? Then he says in chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. This report is so unthinkable that even unbelievers know this is wrong. That someone has his father's wife. And you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So there is a spirit at work in that congregation and it is not a good spirit. That collective spirit of that flock is not healthy. All right? And it's arrogant described there as arrogant, and uh, it has to be dealt with. It's a spirit of arrogance. Paul says, for I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. And we understand it. He's going to be removed from the flock. He's actually going to be given over to Satan for personal divine discipline and, uh, and aspects there. He says in verse uh, 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All right, so a lot to unpack in this context as well, but this is kind of the polar opposite of what we just read with Romans whereby their faith was being proclaimed, whereby their obedience, the report of their obedience was going forth. All, the whole collective spirit of the Roman congregation was such that the, the reputation conveyed was all positive in, uh, in Paul's uh, experience. Just the opposite here with, with Corinth. Just the opposite with Corinth. Okay? Colossians 1. Anxious to get into Colossians. We'll be there before you know it. Like with Rome, it's another flock that Paul had never been to. He'd never been to Colossae. He wanted to. He hoped to. When he gets out of jail, go visit him. 
and, uh, but he's not sure he's going to be able to. And he says in verse 3, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard, now here's their reputation, of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, and Colossae had all three. They've got, uh, they've got some great things going there. And there's a spirit. There is a spirit that's unifying that congregation. That collective spirit of, I mean, do you want to call them Colossae Bible Church or whatever? I don't know that they had a sign out front or a website that you know, they call themselves that. But they are the saints at Colossae in their home church. And they've got a faith, hope, and love. And, and that's the spirit that has been communicated the reputation that has been conveyed because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Even it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And so this is another part of that reputation, part of that spirit that is the servants that God has sent to them. And this should have been a positive thing for Corinth. Corinth should have been thrilled that they had Paul and Peter and Apollos and and, and they should have been thrilled with that wealth of blessings and instead they just got divisive over it. Colossae though was very thankful that they got grounded by Epaphras, the, the beloved fellow bondservant, see. This is, again, part of the reputation that happens. And when I'm praying for churches and I'm praying for shepherds and praying for flocks and trying to train our, tra- our men in the training ministry to this, to this as well, you know, uh, when they ask me, well, what, what can you tell me about Spokane Bible Church? I tell you, Pastor Todd Kennedy's been a faithful teaching pastor since 1976, okay? That's a flock that's been well-grounded. They've been, they're solid. That's, that's a congregation that's going to be squared away in their, in their evangelical theology and their dispensational convictions. And, you know, you're going to find a lot of like-mindedness there because Todd's been a faithful man. You know, or what can I tell you about, uh, you know, name the church, I'll name you the faithful teacher and the solid, the solid teaching that they've been, they've been given. So uh, that's part of the thrill here. All right. Uh, a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Again, it's a capital S. The translators made the editorial decision that they are going to understand that to be God the Holy Spirit. And it may be. We could take it that way. Or could we also take it as a corporate spirit, a collective spirit of a local assembly that's like-minded. For this reason also, let's see, so that's three through eight. That's as far as I wanted to go with that. All right? And that's the collected reputation of the saints in Colossae. What about the saints in Thessalonica? 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10. This is pretty neat too, even before verse 8. It says... uh, in verse uh, 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Notice that. A local church can be an example, and it should be an example to other local churches and believers everywhere. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So powerful was the, the Thessalonican testimony that by the time Paul got to a new territory and he started to preach, he started to say, let me tell you about these Thessalonians, his audience was like, oh, stop right there. We're way ahead of you. The, the reputation has preceded you <laughs> as far as that goes. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So that reputation has gone forth. That spirit has gone forth. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And uh, what a testimony. And it goes forth. I appreciate that. Over to chapter 2 and verse 14. 
you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So it, it, it gets brought forward, right? Before the Thessalonians were an example for others after them, they actually were copying an example set by the churches in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And, and you watch what happened there and you say, you know what's going to happen here? And you get ready for it. And we've got uh, examples there to copy. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. There's the report. It's not gossip. It's not wrong. Because it's a collective spirit. It's a collective identity. It is a lampstand that's being brought forth. It's not... uh, it's not gossip. It's not personal about an individual. It's not, Paul's not going to, you know, Corinth and telling him about, you know, spreading gossip about, you know, a person in Thessalonica. He's talking about the church as a whole, the collective spirit of that congregation. So we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. We have the collective spirit there. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The collective spirit of your lampstand at Philippi. All right. Well, we will uh, come back on Sunday, Lord willing and rapture pending, and begin a summary of um, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. We'll give a kind of a summary, a big picture for what we've been dealing with now for uh, for all of these classes. I think this is, what is, it, what is this, number 190 is what the bulletin says. So we've had 190 classes in, uh, in Philippians and we'll take the time to kind of review everything from uh, have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus, right? To our citizenship is in heaven, to forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward what lies ahead. To There have been a lot of, uh, of, of memorable verses in this book study and I want to make sure that we don't forget those before we move on to uh, to Colossians chapter 1. All right. Father, we do thank you for tonight. We thank you for your truth and the blessings of these last 190 lessons in uh, in the book of Philippians, Father. And this is uh, such a marvelous text. It's uh, so um, uh, powerful, Father, and profound in, in the kenosis of our Savior who had every glory imaginable and set it aside so that he could walk our walk. And that's the example we're supposed to imitate. And this book lays it out there, Father, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the saints at Philippi, including a jailer that, uh, that got saved um, that on that marvelous night. And so you think about uh, what we've been learning. We're thinking about Yodi and Sinechi. We're thinking about uh, all of the blessings of this epistle. And, and uh, I ask that it would just have a, a powerful impact in Austin Bible Church, individually and collectively, Father, that uh, we would be built up in the faith and, and stronger as an assembly because you've blessed us with this book study. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.